All right, well, good morning. Uh, like Kat said, today is Christ the King Sunday, which uh, is at the, the end of the, the church calendar. So the church calendar follows a different sort of trajectory than our regular calendar. And um, the, the church calendar begins with Advent, which is next Sunday, um, and goes through Advent, Epiphany, uh, Easter, Pentecost, and then we have this big chunk of time called Ordinary Time, and then at the end, which is life, right? Ordinary time. And then we get to the end of it, and we get to Christ the King Sunday. And I, I love this, and it's really uh, sort of captured my imagination over the last couple of years. And the reason why I love it is because, like, this is the trajectory of the church calendar, right? Everything is working up to this point where we acknowledge and confess Jesus is King. But this is also the trajectory of our lives, right? As we live out the, this church calendar, it's a formational sort of thing for us, and everything's working to this point. But this is also like the trajectory of the cosmos themselves, right? Like everything is heading to this point where every knee should bow and confess that Jesus is Lord, as Paul says, right? Uh, so this is a, a beautiful Sunday, and uh, boy, if we're going to do fireworks and stay up till midnight, maybe it should have been last night, right? But I'm sleep-deprived with a, a child, so no, I don't want to do that, but... Anyways, uh, so this will, will make an appearance in our, our sermon for today. Um, but as we get ready to jump into that, uh, let's pause for a word of prayer. Loving God, uh, we are grateful for uh, the gift of this community. Uh, we're grateful for the, the gift and the, the chance and the ability to gather together. Um, and God, as we uh, turn now and wrestle with the scriptures, we, um, we pause, uh, we yield ourselves, and uh, we acknowledge that your spirit is here among us. And so as we uh, yield ourselves to your spirit, we ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm sure that you are well aware of the pandemic that took place in 2020 and 2021 and 20. 22, uh, but I'm curious if uh, you are as aware of the endemic that took place in 2020. So pandemic being this like global, across the world sort of phenomena, but an endemic is much more regional, much more like national, a little bit more focused. Uh, this endemic that took place in the US in 2020 uh, was responsible for 45,222 deaths. Again, this is just in the US, just in the year 2020. Now, the reality of all of these deaths probably shouldn't have surprised us a little bit that much because like, there's been a, a growing number of, of deaths as a result of this endemic over the last number of years. So uh, one year prior, uh, in 2019, the, uh, so, excuse me, this 45,222 deaths in 2020 was a 14% increase from one year prior in 2019. This 45,222 deaths in 2020 was a 25% increase from 2015. And this 45,222 deaths in 2020 was a 43% increase from 2010, just 10 years prior. Now you might be asking, what's the cause of this endemic? What's the cause of all of these deaths? The cause of these 45,222 deaths in 2020 is related to guns. Uh, now, I don't know if guns are technically an endemic. I don't know how that works. I don't know the ins and outs of the CDC or whatever governing body gets to determine those labels. But I think these numbers certainly suggest that we, within the United States, have some sort of gun-related problem. 
If these numbers don't convince you, then how about this one? The United States has something like 5% of the world's population, and yet we own 50% of the world's guns. Yeah, take a minute to wrap your mind around that one. Um, the U.S. has uh, 120.5 guns per 100 residents. I don't actually know the name of the statistic. Gun density ratio makes sense to me. That sounds smart. So we lead the, the, the world in gun density ratio. Number two in the, the world, Yemen, with 52.8 guns per 100 residents. We are more than double any other country in the world. And the statistics go on and on and on and get far more troubling, but we'll leave it at that. A woman by the name of Margaret uh, Huang, who was the former executive director of Amnesty International, which is a, a grassroots sort of organic uh, civil rights and human rights organization, uh, said that the U.S. government is prioritizing gun ownership over basic human rights. Despite the huge number of guns in circulation and the sheer number of deaths by guns each year, there's a shocking lack of federal regulations that could save thousands. When I first read this, that, uh, that, that first line got me. The U.S. government is prioritizing gun ownership over basic human rights. This seems to suggest that within the U.S., like, guns have reached like, a place of like, becoming an idol. Or we could even say that guns in the U.S. have become almost like a god among us. So much so that anytime there's some sort of incident or some sort of uh, tragedy, uh, and people who are, are, are get up in arms and like call for some sort of change to happen. Those who have power, those who benefit from the gun, from the, this enormous amount of guns and from the gun industry stand up and they're like, well, now's not the time to act. We don't want to do anything that could be irrational or reactionary and something that we forget some, or something that we regret someday. And every time I read a headline and every time I see somebody saying, now's not the time to act, I think, when is the right time to act? And in the wake of these tragedies, we're often told that the only thing that we can like, actually do is offer up our thoughts and prayers. And I'll be honest with you, and maybe this makes me a terrible pastor, and I'm okay with that, but I don't feel like those thoughts and prayers have actually done much good. Now, when it comes to things like a national crisis, when it comes to things like violence, when it comes to things like idolatry, I think there's one particular uh, voice from Scripture that we need to hear. And that's the voice of the prophet Isaiah. And the reason why I think we need to hear from the voice of the prophet Isaiah is Isaiah was doing uh, his prophetic thing in the, the city of Jerusalem, the capital of, of Judah, in the midst of a very, very intense sort of geopolitical uh, situation. Uh, so he is located in, the, in Jerusalem, the capital city of Ju uh, Judah, and here's a map, which I know, I know, I know. When a sermon brings in a map, it's a big eye roll. I get it, right? Okay, so, so bear with me. This is going somewhere, all right? So here we have uh, what was once the kingdom of Israel as a unified kingdom. They've split as a result of a, a, a civil war. We have the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. That red dot right there? That's Jerusalem. That's where Isaiah is. Now, about the time that Isaiah begins to do his prophetic thing, uh, there is a big, bad superpower that is just ransacking everything by the name of Assyria. So keep in mind Israel and Judah here, because as uh, Isaiah gets, uh, begins to start doing his thing about that same time, this is what Assyria looks like. That red dot, 
That's the entire nation of Judah. So, like, Assyria is destroying everything. Assyria is uh, uh, ransacking everything. Assyria is taking control of everything around them, including beginning to threaten Judah. And this is when uh, Isaiah begins to step forward and do his prophetic sort of work and ministry. Like, this is a very, very intense time. The world superpower of the day is breathing down their neck from every sort of angle. Uh, it reminds me of a friend of mine who began to, to pastor a congregation in the fall of 2020. Yeah, I don't even have to explain that, right? I mean, think back to 2020 if, like, your brain will allow you to slip back into that trauma, right? Like, we're, we're dealing, like, in the height of COVID, uh, which in and of itself was this divisive sort of uh, thing. But then it's also, like, the buildup to, like, perhaps one of the most divisive sort of presidential elections ever, right? <laughs> and I, I heard news of this, and I was like, boy, you picked an awful time to start being a pastor, Right? Now, take that and like, add in the, the threat of loss of life and magnify it by like 5,000. And this is like what Isaiah is dealing with, right? Like the big, bad superpower of the day, breathing down their necks. And so in the midst of that, we get this from Isaiah chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And so in the midst of all of this war around them, Isaiah steps forward and he has this vision about war no more. And I have to imagine, if I'm a contemporary of Isaiah, I'm kind of scratching my head thinking, Isaiah, are you crazy? <laughs> Because again, like we can show Isaiah the maps, right? And you could probably be asking, like, Isaiah, have you not checked your Twitter feed? Do you not realize what the Assyrians are doing to us in this moment? Like, Isaiah, like the cards are stacked against us, and you have this sort of vision of war no more. And yet, Isaiah seems to speak this word of God, from God, for the people of God. He has this vision as if this is like a, a vision that comes from God's very self. And it seems as though like the, the impulse behind this vision is to remind the people of what God promised their ancestor generation upon generation upon generation prior and the person of Abraham. Because when God called forth Abraham uh, and gave him this sort of trajectory in his life, God said to Abraham that I will make you a great nation and you will be a blessing to all other nations. And I can imagine, like, when we come back to the reality of this map where Assyria is surrounding them, everything probably feels a little bit shaky, and you might have even wondered if God had forgotten God's promise. And it seems as though part of this vision is God reminding the people, one, of God's promise for their life, and two, reminding them that God's very self has not even forgotten this promise. And so this vision of Isaiah isn't crazy by any means, <laughs> But this vision of Isaiah is meant to be in some way motivational or inspirational for them. A reminder of what is to be in the midst of what is. A reminder of the trajectory of where all of this is headed, despite all of the chaos around them. 
And the way that this sort of thing functions in the Bible, by the way, this word eschatology, which doesn't have to be a scary left behind sort of thing, but it's a vision of what is in the midst of, of, of a vision of what will be in the midst of what is, is meant to like capture our hearts. And it's meant to be something that like we get our hands on and we begin to live into that reality right here, right now. That we don't just wait for this to happen, but that we join in, in what God is doing and begin to live into this reality in this very present moment. So, what seems to be central to this vision of Isaiah is this reality of the house of God coming down upon Mount Zion, the highest of all mountains, the highest hill among all of the hills, right? This idea that God's throne is now established on earth as it is in heaven. And this seems to be central because we're told a few things of what God does from God's throne here. We're told that God shall judge between the nations, that God is the judge in this, this uh, vision, and as God is sitting on God's throne, and as God is the judge, God shall arbitrate for many. Meaning, help settle out differences, help resolve conflict. And this is good, because I don't know if this is a secret at all, but you and I, me, we, you, us, as individuals, as human beings, we're not good at doing that, right? <laughs> we're not good at arbitrating, or arbit or arbitrating for ourselves. We're not good at s settling out differences. We're not good at sorting out conflict. We're not good at that. And so it's good news that we don't have to do this in this vision, but it's actually really good news that God does this. Now, maybe this is uh, uh, a bit skewed because I'm raising a toddler right now. But I recognize like, when I enter into conflict with somebody, or I have a disagreement, or I, I, there's something that I want that I don't get, my inner toddler comes out like that, right? Like when I watch my son interact with uh, one of his, his buddies, and they, take, they have a toy that he wants, he'll just walk up, shove him, push him, grab it, and run off. <laughs> and I'll be honest with you, when I have disagreements, that's exactly what I want to do too, right? And I'm guessing you're not too far behind. But see, this doesn't just come out in like these interpersonal sorts of ways, but I think this also comes out in these national sort of global sorts of ways. Um, there's, a, there's a war happening right now between Russia and Ukraine. And again, it's been fascinating to, to witness some sort of like global conflict like this uh, while I'm raising a, a toddler. Because right now, the, the president of Russia, Putin, is doing like things that I tell my toddler it's not okay to do, Right? Um, thank God for Daniel Tiger and the songs of Daniel Tiger because Pax reminds himself often that like it's okay to be angry but it's not 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 okay to hurt someone right like I'm I'm hearing this and I'm reminding myself of that right and yet what we have is the leader of a, a world superpower who sees a patch of land and a group of people and I know it's more complicated than this but like and he wants it. And so he grabs it, and he shoves, and he pushes. Except instead of having the strength of a two-year-old, he's got an entire military and an entire arsenal of missiles and bombs, right? In the midst of conflict, like we, our inner toddler comes out quick like that, whether that be interpersonal or global. And so it's really good news that in this vision of Isaiah, you and I don't have to settle our differences, that you and I don't have to handle solving our conflict, because we're not good at it. But God is just, and God is wise, and God will lead us into a peaceable reality in the midst of our disputes. And so we, 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 we come into a reality where these disputes don't end in violence. And so if these disputes don't end in violence, and there isn't violence in this vision, then we ask the question of like, well, then we don't really have any use for these instruments of war anymore, then do we? 
And so if we don't have any use for these instruments of war and these instruments of violence, then what do we do with them? Isaiah says, we beat those suckers down, baby. (laughs) Now, this word beat is a really fascinating one. Um, It it comes from the Hebrew word katheoth. And it's used a variety of ways in the Old Testament. Um, But there's one particular way that it gets used uh, repeatedly that's really fascinating. So here's a, here's a summary of some of these. So uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9. Uh, this is Moses telling the people about the time when Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law from God. They get impatient. They're like, oh, Moses, you've been up there quite a while. Like, we're going to build our own sort of God, a golden calf, and we're going to worship this thing. Moses comes down. Moses is very upset. So this is Moses retelling this to them. He said, then I took the sinful thing that you had made, the calf, and burned it with fire and crushed it, katheoth. Grinding it thoroughly until it was reduced to dust, and I threw the dust of it into the stream that runs down the mountain. So Moses encounters this idol, and what does he do to it? He beats it. Or what about this? Second Kings chapter 18. Uh, we've, this is King Hezekiah. We've been introduced to King Hezekiah just prior to this. We've been told that he's a good king, that he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, which is a good thing because most of the kings didn't. So we're, we're seeing something good here happening. We're told that King Hezekiah removed the high places broke down the pillars, and cut down the sacred pole. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. So again, there's an idol, and what does King Hezekiah do to it? He beats it. What about this? 2 Chronicles uh, 34, King Josiah, again, same sort of thing. We're told that King Josiah is a good king. He does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, which is good because none of the other kings seem to do that very well. But we're told that he broke down the altars, He beat the sacred poles and the images into powder and demolished all the incense altars all throughout Israel. So again, we have an idol, and what does he do to it? He beats it down. And one more for good measure, right? Micah chapter 1, this is the prophet speaking to the people of God um, with this sort of feminine language. And he says, all her images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay to waste. So there's these idols, and what happens to them? They are beaten. Now, all of this seems to suggest that perhaps when we come to Isaiah chapter 2, and we see within this vision, Isaiah saying that they shall beat their swords into plowshares, they shall beat their spears into pruning hooks, perhaps Isaiah is acknowledging that these instruments of violence, these swords and these spears, have become an idol for the people. And in some ways, like, this makes sense, right? There's a big bad Assyria breathing down your necks. Like, it would make sense that you might start to cling to idols of war, to, to idols of these instruments of violence. And yet Isaiah says in this vision, we don't do that. <laughs> but in Isaiah's vision, these, these uh, instruments of violence have been dethroned. They've been removed from their throne. And in their place, Yahweh uh, takes uh, God's seat, Right? And instead of being shaped in the ways of these instruments of violence, which lead us to war and more violence, we're instead being shaped in the way of Yahweh, which leads us inevitably into peace. So we come back to our present crisis within the United States, this crisis, this madness that we have with guns. And people often ask this question of like, do we have a gun problem or do we have a heart problem? I think if we were to ask Isaiah, he would say, Yes, (laughs) we worship guns, and we use guns. 
we worship guns, which is a heart thing, and we use guns, which is a gun thing. And I think for Isaiah, he might say that the key to peace lies in both disarming and dethroning. These two things together. Disarming ourselves of these violent instruments and dethroning these violent instruments from their place within our hearts and within our imagination. We worship these uh, violent instruments, which means that we use these violent instruments. And because we use these violent instruments, we then in turn worship these violent instruments. This is how idolatry and this is how human formation works. So the key to peace then lies in both disarming and dethroning together. So for the last four months, uh, I have been off social media, uh, except I've acknowledged Notre Dame football Twitter, which is my own problem. But I've been off social media entirely for the last uh, four months, and it has been awesome. Uh, I've, I've tried to do this before, and I knew that I had a problem. Like I, I, social media took up way too much time of my life, and uh, I, I quickly began to realize like, I couldn't just dabble with social media. I hear people say, like, oh, I check Facebook like once every two weeks. I'm like, I checked it once every two hours. Um, I knew I had a problem, right? Um, but I knew that like, the reality was, like, as long as I was armed with social media, um, something within my heart would always be drawing me more and more towards social media. <laughs> and so I just cut it off completely. Uh, I changed my passwords, or I logged out, I changed my passwords. I don't remember my passwords. I know I could find it, but quite frankly, I'm too lazy for that. Um, and it's been really amazing. Like, I haven't actually gotten back on. And it, it took, like, both disarming and dethroning. Like, I couldn't just dethrone it and say, well, social media isn't that big a part of my heart. Because as long as I was armed with it, it was always going to be beckoning and compelling my heart. And here's what's even more fascinating. The longer I've been off social media, the longer I've been able to realize why it consumes so much of my life. There was a desire within me to have a way of, like, checking out from the reality of the world around me. Something within me wanted to decompress, to check out, to just like get away from the problems of the world. And unfortunately, like for me, mindlessly scrolling, was not, that was not a good way to do that, right? Like we all need to do that in our life, but for me, scrolling mindlessly was not a good way of doing that. But when I disarmed and dethroned social media from my life, I began to find healthier ways of checking out and decompressing. Like going to the gym and popping in headphones and existing in my own little world, right? And this became a much more healthy way for me to uh, disengage and check out and decompress from the stressors of life. And I wonder if the same couldn't be said about the madness of guns. What if we disarmed and dethroned ourselves from guns? Perhaps we could acknowledge, we could actually get to the thing beneath the thing of why we have such an insatiable thirst and hunger for guns. And maybe we would get to the bottom of that and say like, oh, there's this desire for safety and protection and love and flourishing. And then those who are anti-guns may even say, you know what, I have that same sort of desire within my life for safety and protection and life and flourishing. And if we were to disarm and dethrone ourselves, perhaps then we could also find more creative, more beautiful ways of meeting this sort of need and desire within us. Perhaps rather than doing the negative of taking life as a means of safety and protection, which Isaiah refers to as swords and spears, Perhaps we could find a more positive way of pursuing safety and protection, which is cultivating life, plowshares and pruning hooks. And if we were to disarm and dethrone ourselves of these instruments of violence, perhaps we would be willing to look across the aisle or across the spectrum or whatever it might be, look at the eyes of our fellow human being 
and say, we all want the same thing, and perhaps then we can get hand in hand and begin to walk towards the throne of God together and learn the ways of God together and get to a place where we don't have to learn war anymore. So today is Christ the King Sunday, um, and uh, because of this and because of Isaiah 2 and this imagery of God's throne, I've thought a lot about, like, what does Jesus' throne look like? Which is an interesting question. Does Jesus sit, like, literally on a throne? I don't know. That's out of my pay grade. But it's an interesting question to ask, like, what, what does the throne of Jesus look like, right? And so because I'm a good Mennonite, I went back to the Gospels, and I thought an awful lot about the Gospels. And I realized, like, Jesus spent an awful lot of time around tables. Um, Jesus spent an awful lot of time eating uh, at tables with people. And he often did this in some sort of object lesson, right? He was eating with people who were deemed out of bounds. And this was his way of saying, like, even within the kingdom of God, that this is what happens, right? Um, But more than just an object lesson, Jesus also used this as, like, part of his teaching. And so we see him saying things like, the, the kingdom of God is like a banquet. Meaning, like, this long table filled with food that all people are invited to join in on. So I began to think, if tables are central to Jesus' life and ministry and teaching, then maybe tables are central to his rule and reign as Christ our King. And maybe his throne looks a little bit like a table. Now, a few years ago, uh, the Lighthouse commissioned a local artist uh, to um, put together a table uh, for outside the Lighthouse office in the, the patio area there. And this location was really intentional um, because a few years prior to this commissioning, um, uh, a man had his life uh, taken as a result of a gun in that very spot. And this was a a very intentional location by those who set him up because they knew it was a quiet and safe street. So, like, if you're freaking out, it's a quiet and safe street, but this was, like, intentionally uh, the targeted location. And things went south, and, like, he had his life taken. And so from that point on... uh, Darren began to like try and think up some sort of like statement for like what the church's response is in the midst of like the ugliness of violence in our world and in our city and even at times in our neighborhood. And Darren's on sabbatical, so I won't have him t- tell the story. But uh, as I understand it, like Isaiah two, like the imagery of Isaiah two, like began to flood his mind. Right, this idea of uh, beating swords into plowshares, this idea of taking instruments of violence and transforming them into instruments of life. And he began to work with uh, the local artists, and they came up with this. It's a beautiful table, right? It catches your eye, beautiful colors, beautiful designs. But as you get closer, um, you begin to see what it's made of. And that beautiful design is made up of bullet casing. And I love hearing Darren give a spiel about this because every time I get goosebumps because at some point along the way he says, you know, a bullet is the end of conversation. But a table is the beginning of conversation. And I wonder if maybe this is what Jesus' throne looks like. Perhaps... uh, as this, we get this vision in Isaiah 2 of God's throne coming to Mount Zion, of God's throne coming on earth as it is in heaven, perhaps this is what God's throne actually looks like. Perhaps uh, God isn't asking us to do anything that God isn't willing to do God's very self. That perhaps when God is asking of us to disarm and dethrone the places of these instruments of violence from our life, that God has already gone before us and already 
done this. And all that God is asking us to do is join in in this redemptive work of taking the, the, the ugly things of this world and transforming them into beautiful things, of taking these instruments of violence and transforming them into instruments of life. And so my friends, may we disarm and dethrone these instruments of violence from our life. And may we walk hand in hand to the throne of God. And as we get to the throne of God, may we learn the way of Jesus together. And may we get to a place where we don't have to learn more anymore. Amen.